I hate people. What? I, am I getting punked right now or what? <laughs> I was driving to church this week, and I live a mile from church. Yes, I'm lazy, so I drive. I was driving to church, and I saw a guy walking down the sidewalk just three blocks from our building with his shirt on. I hate people. I, didn't have, I couldn't get my phone out quick enough because I was driving, he was walking, and I didn't want to crash to take a picture of him in his shirt, so I went online and found the shirt, and it just got me thinking. Well, I shouldn't tell you everything that got me thinking because it would reveal that maybe I have some same, similar feelings. Hey, but it got me thinking, do I, do I, do I applaud this guy for just being honest about what so many people feel? Or am I appalled by this statement? And, and as I was looking for this shirt online, I found a, cute, a few other options. If this is just too in your face, there's some cuter options for us to express how we truly feel about people right? I love camping because I hate people. The, the, the blue one there with the rainbows and the, and the sunshine and the whatever those things are, little furry baby, whatever they are, you can buy that for your kids. Teach them young to hate people, right? I like coffee and maybe three people. You ever been there? Ever felt those things? Maybe the last two years when opinions are all over the place and there's so much disinformation and misinformation and competing information and there's so many things to be angry about and up in arms about. Do you ever just feel like, there's some people that I just, well, I'm a Christian, so I can't say I hate them, but I really don't know that I like them. I really don't know that I want to be around them. And in fact... They seem to be getting closer and closer to home. They seem to be sitting next to me in the pew at church. They seem to be in my small group, in my community group. The way that they think about the world, I don't, I don't, I don't know if we have anything in common. My parents, my kids, my siblings, my cousins, my aunts and my uncles, I, we see the world very differently. I'm not sure that I want to go to the family reunion. I'm not sure that I like those people. Slip into, do I have some kind of hatred or disdain for those people? This fall, we're walking through a sermon series on the disciples. We're looking at different disciples and just what it means to follow Jesus. To be a disciple to, means to be an apprentice or a follower, somebody who walks with Jesus. And so this fall, we're just looking at various characters, various people who walked with Jesus 2,000 years ago and trying to learn from them. And over the next three weeks, rather than looking at a person, we're going to look at an idea, a theme of discipleship. And the big idea for the next three weeks that we're going to look into is that disciples walk with Jesus by loving one another Loving neighbors and loving enemies. And, and we're going to see some of this come out of the Apostle John, who went from being called the Son of Thunder to the Apostle of Love. And we're going to actually look more specifically at John next week. But this week, before we kind of get into John next week and talk about loving neighbors, this week I want to start by talking about loving one another. So the big idea, this week we're talking about loving one another. Next week we're going to talk about loving neighbor. And the week after that we're going to talk about loving our enemies. These are three characteristics that must be true of Christians. When we live in a world 
where people feel comfortable wearing t-shirts and getting for their children t-shirts that say, I hate people. And when we live in a world where even if you don't have the audacity to wear that t-shirt or to make that claim, when you, when you assess your soul and you realize that there's some, there's some disdain in me, there's some hatred in me, there's, there's a lack of love in me for people in general, and the closer that it gets to home, the more that my beaker is bumped, so to speak, the sediment rises up, and I, and I question, do I actually love my brothers and sisters in Christ? Jesus has something to say about this in Matthew chapter 5. Flip there. I'm going to start by looking at Matthew chapter 5. It's not in the notes, but I think it'll set up well for us this idea of hatred. Matthew chapter 5. Grab a pew Bible, open that up, or open up your own Bible, or turn on your phone and look at Matthew chapter 5. It's on page 810 in the pew Bible. Starting in verse 21, Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, notice the, the, the word there, his brother. So over the next three weeks, it's, it's so important that we talk about disciples who love our neighbors and love our enemies because Jesus teaches us to love our neighbors and love our enemies, so we're going to dive into what that means. But Jesus consistently, and the scriptures consistently talk about loving one another. How can you love your neighbor? How can you love your enemy if you can't love your fellow brother and sister in Christ? And so Jesus here, actually, with the disciples present, he's setting this up. He says, you've heard it said that that murderers shall be liable to judgment, but I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother, the, the word here for anger means like a settled opposition. You are, you are opposed to your brother, to your sister in Christ. They will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And the word for insults here means to say like, you're worth nothing. Your ideas are worthless. You're worthless. You fool. And that's what he goes on to say. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to hell. Not just whoever comes out and actually expresses it, I hate people. I hate this kind of person. I hate this kind of person. I hate these groups of people. I hate these groups of people. But whoever says, you fool, your ideas, your opinions, your perspectives, your efforts are foolish, ridiculous. There may be some foolish things that we do in life, but if you become steadily opposed to a person, this is what Jesus is saying, you're liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering, so if, Verse 23, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, not that you have something against your brother, there's some self-reflection here. If somebody has something against me because of the way that I've acted, because of my responses, because of my judgments towards them, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. See, that this call for Jesus as he invites us to walk with him, as he invites us to apprentice him, his disciples, we walk with him by loving our brother, our sister in Christ, loving one another, loving our neighbors, and loving our enemies. But today we're diving into what it means to love one another. And so that's, that kind of sets the stage. 
how we need to get rid of hatred or disdain or casting judgment on our brother and our sister in Christ. And I don't think I need to do much to dig into how you've all experienced this, right? And the church in America right now is dealing with so much division. Your families are dealing with so much division. Your friend groups, your small groups. Like, you don't... People just seem different now than they did a couple years ago, right? Or at least it's just been revealed to you. Maybe it feels harder to love people right now than it has in the past. Harder to love your Christian brothers and sisters. Like, well, they're choosing to interpret these passages this way or these cultural events this way, and I just don't know that we have any common ground anymore. And in that environment, Jesus calls us to love one another. Let me remind you that as we look at the disciples this fall, so many of the followers of Jesus in the first century came from such different backgrounds, such different perspectives. Garth preached on Peter last week. Peter was a fisherman, a Jewish fisherman. I preached on Matthew a few weeks before that. Matthew was a tax collector who taxed fishermen for the Roman government. Peter, a zealot. Simon the zealot, his name became Peter. These two, by the world standards, would not get along. They viewed the world very differently. Matthew was in bed with the Roman government, working for the Roman government. He was, he was into this political power system, and Peter was against that. And Jesus calls both of them to come and to follow him. I preached on Mary and Martha a couple weeks ago, two sisters who had disagreements about how to follow Jesus. Remember, Mary wanted to sit at Jesus' feet and Martha wanted to serve. And actually, Martha reached out to Jesus and was like, Jesus, tell my sister to do what I'm doing. Two sisters, blood sisters. Peter and Matthew, not blood brothers, but brothers in Christ, learning to follow him together. And they had to learn to love one another. And this is where it all starts for us, church family. If we can't, by the grace of God and the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, figure out how to love one another, the world has no chance of seeing our God as good, our Jesus as loving and salvific. And Jesus tells us that himself. Let's, uh, let's get into it here. Let's look at Jesus' teaching first. So today, as we talk about this idea of loving one another, we're going to consider Jesus' teaching, the disciples' definition, and then Jesus' example. Let's look at Jesus' teaching. Open up to John chapter 13 with me. John chapter 13, I'm going to read verse 34 through 35. We're going to look at a ton of scripture today, so have your Bible ready, and I'm just going to let the Bible speak for us on its own, really, about what it means to love one another. John 13, verse 34 through 35, it's on page 900 in the Pew Bible. And Jesus writes to his disciples, to those learning how to follow him, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. What did Jesus teach? By this, the world will know that you are my disciples if you figure out the latest social controversy. 
No. By this, the world will know that you are my followers if you have the right theology. No. By this, the world will know that you are my disciples if, 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 if whatever. Fill in your blank of what you've thought recently. And Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, there's an important thing in here that often gets skipped. I want you to notice it in verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, right? So, I mean, we all know this, right? You're not going to hear anything new today. Because I don't think the church needs more information, especially the Western American church. We have so much information. We have so much intellect about the things of God. But I think our information outpaces our obedience. And so, Let's look at this again, 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 again. I think repetition is one of our friends. Repetition and practice is how you grow. As we walk with Jesus, we need repeated teaching and practice in application. So Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Okay, we know that. He says, just as I have loved you. And, And we know that too at least in our head, that we're loved by Jesus. And if you grew up in the church or around the church, maybe even if you have no prior church experience, maybe you've heard the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I grew up hearing that song, singing that song. I grew up in the church. And so theoretically, intellectually, theologically, I know that Jesus loves me. You have likely heard that before. You likely know that in your head as well. But have you experienced his love. Actually, if I could rewrite this big idea, I think I would say disciples walk with Jesus by receiving his love, by accepting his love, by experiencing his love, and then loving one another, loving neighbor and loving enemy. See, the reality is we can't love one another, we can't love neighbor, we can't love enemy if we don't understand that we ourselves are loved. And I actually think this is where a lot of the hate comes from. A lot of the disdain, the dislike, the disagreement, the division. I I think people in the church, outside of the church, are struggling with self-hatred. Are living with this, this suppressed level of, I'm wrong, I'm wrong, I'm wrong. How could God love me? How could God love me? How could God love me? I looked at that again. I touched that again. I said that again. I thought that again. I did that again. I made that judgment yet again. I'm going to knock over Ben's music stand. How could God love me? And Jesus here says that you are to love one another, second half of verse 34, just as I have loved you. So my first question for us to to think through and for you to think through this week is, do you know that you are loved? Okay, your answer to that is likely yes. Have you experienced God's love? Like the full acceptance of God for who you are. I'm going to read just a little part of this book. This book is called The Gift of Being Yourself. I highly recommend it to everybody to read right now. And, And not out of balance of like, 
the gift of being yourself, right? Like, I like to preach, and I've been grown up in the church, and, and I've been influenced by preachers and pastors and, and theology that says, let's make much of God and not very much of ourselves. But I think sometimes that can be an overcorrection, right? Like to the snowflake generation. Because I, I preached on Psalm 139 a few weeks ago, and it says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. That God knit you together with your personality, with your style, with your likes, with your dislikes. In your mother's womb, your life is not a mistake. God ordained your life. He has called you to himself. And there is something unique about you that the world needs to experience. And if you don't understand how much Jesus loves you, you're going to struggle to love your brother and sister in Christ. Let me just read a little bit from this book, The Gift of Being Yourself. He says, one young woman told me that she feels afraid because she is sure that God is mad at her. I can't tell you how much of my pastoral counsels with people who just are convinced that God is perpetually mad or disappointed with them. She thinks God is preoccupied with her sins and shortcomings and views her with anger and reproach. Disappointment and frustration. I can also think of a friend who says that he no longer believes that God takes a personal interest in human beings. He's one among millions of people on the face of the earth. He suspects that he and the rest of us fail to register as individuals in God's consciousness. He tells me that he wishes he could believe God loves him and knows him, but he cannot be persuaded that it's possible. Is he right? Is she right? And I just can't tell you, church, how how much this sometimes stirs up in my own soul and how much I experience it in conversations with others. God's mad at me. I failed again. I failed again. I failed again. God's frowning upon me. Does does God even know about this thought, this action, this deed, this desire of mine? And the author of this book goes on to say, I am convinced that God loves each and every one of us with depth persistence, and intensity beyond imagination. God doesn't simply like you. He loves you. Nor does God simply have a warm, sentimental feeling towards you just because you were created in his divine image. The truth is that God loves you with what Hannah Hernerd called a passionate, absorbed interest. God cannot help seeing you through the eyes of his love. Even more remarkable, God's love for you has nothing to do with your behavior. Neither your faithfulness nor your unfaithfulness alters divine love in the slightest degree. Like the father's love in the parable of the prodigal son, divine love is absolutely unconditional, unlimited, and unimaginably extravagant. Have you experienced that? Christians affirm a foundation of identity that is absolutely unique in the marketplace of spiritualities. Whether we realize it or not, our being is grounded in God's love. The generative love of God was our origin. The embracing love of God sustains our existence. The inextinguishable love of God is the only hope for our fulfillment. Love is our identity and our calling, for we are children of God, children of love. Created from love, of love, and for love. Our existence makes no sense apart from God's divine love. Have you experienced what Jesus says here In John 13, I command you to love one another just as I have loved you. 
And how has God loved you? With persistence, with forgiveness, with putting up with all of your flaws, with, with, with celebrating all of your unique intricacies. And so, church, I think one of the corrections to the family of God is that if we're going to love one another as Jesus commands his disciples to, we actually have to receive God's unconditional love for us and not just know it, but experience it. And so, Jesus says, I command you to love one another just as I have loved you. And then verse 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's look over at John 17. Jesus expands on this idea. John 17, verse 20 through 26. John 17 is an incredible passage. If you've never read it, I encourage you to read it this afternoon and just spend some time meditating on it. It's Jesus giving this high priestly prayer. He's praying to God the Father before he's about to be crucified. And here's what he says in verse 20 through 26. He says, I do not ask for these only. And in the preceding passage, he's praying about his current disciples, the ones that are walking with him 2,000 years ago in the first century, praying specifically for them, his friends, his followers. And then in verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and I, 2,000 years later. Jesus is saying these apostles, these disciples are going to go out and spread the gospel to all the nations. And there's going to be people who are following Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life for years to come until he returns or calls us home. And so Jesus, in forethought, is praying for you and I. He says, I I pray for those who will believe in me through their word, through their testimony. Here we are 2,000 years later, the recipients of this prayer. Verse 21, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved me, even as you have loved and loved them, even as you have loved me. So how will the world know that Jesus has been sent as the Messiah and the Savior? by our many theological camps, by our many hot takes on social issues, by our many attempts to solve the world's problems, by our many competing ideals and ideas. and That's not what Jesus says. He says directly that as they, my followers, my disciples, become one, That's how the world will know that I'm the Messiah. If the world looks at Christians and sees a bunch of division, they think that God is divided. I was was at a pastor luncheon last week with a bunch of different pastors from a bunch of different nations, a bunch of different ethnicities, a bunch of different languages. It was amazing. And, And one of the pastors got up and he referenced this passage and he said, The way that I'm reading Jesus here is that there's one church in the Twin Cities with many different locations, many different expressions of worship, but one church, and this is a staff meeting right now, and I love that church. I want you to know that the church is more united than many of you have experienced. And and many of you don't get to see it, but I get to sit in rooms with pastors of all different backgrounds and cultures, and we're clinging to Jesus, and we're saying, yes, the church is the hope of the world, and Jesus has said, as we grow into becoming one, as we're united, 
that's when the world will look at us and say, maybe this God is real. Maybe that Jesus really lived. Maybe that Jesus is really the Messiah. And so church, I want you to know Park Community Church is not in competition with other churches. We are on one team. I was just at a staff meeting with a bunch of other pastors. It was amazing. Continue with me. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and those know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You hear Jesus is teaching Jesus' heart for his church to be one. This doesn't mean we don't see things different ways. We don't experience things different ways. It's not, to, it's not at all to like wipe away our individuality and our uniqueness. Psalm 139 says that you are created uniquely, intimately, wonderfully. But in that, we need to learn to love one another and to become one. That's Jesus' clear teaching. The world will know that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Savior, as his people increasingly love one another. Right? Not as his church increasingly gets on the same page about how to handle and respond to COVID. Amen? In spite of our differences of perspective, opinion, resources, information... When we love one another, the, the world may start to look at us and say, there's something unique there. They disagree on a lot of things, but at the end of the day, they love one another. Let's look at the disciples' definition of this. Let's keep going. So that's some of Jesus' teaching. There's a lot more, but I want to look at how it expands as the disciples walk with Jesus. He ascends back into heaven. Jesus is crucified. He rises from the dead. He ascends back into heaven, and the disciples picked up this teaching and carry it on. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's on page 959, and I know this currently right now is not a wedding ceremony. 1 Corinthians 13 is good for so much more than wedding ceremonies. It's good for the church. It's good for the disciples who want to learn to walk with Jesus in love. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge... Boy, isn't our world in a search for understanding, un, understanding mysteries right now? Isn't our world in a search for, for all knowledge? Just tell me what to know. Tell me what to know. Tell me the information. Tell me the facts. Give me the right knowledge. The right knowledge will lead to the right answers, not what the Bible teaches. If I have prophetic powers, verse 2, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Maybe all of your opinions and perspectives are right, and you are the source of all knowledge, or you, you're drawing from the source of all knowledge, which is actually just this, but maybe you're filtering this through some other knowledge, and you think you have the answers. And Jesus says, well, Paul, let's be clear, Paul is writing this, because he walked with Jesus. He actually didn't. He was met by Jesus. You know the story. Well, get into that later when we talk about Paul. 
But he says, if I have not love, I have nothing. Verse 3, if I give all away, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. I can do a lot of things that seem very loving, yet I can do it without love. And so the question remains as we go through this, what is love? How do we define love? Jesus says, love one another, love one another, love one another. The world will know that, that, that I am their king, that I am their savior, that I am their Lord, that in me all of life finds its wholeness once you love one another, once you become one. But what is love? What is love? Paul goes on to define it. Verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Oh. Recently, I was having conversations. This isn't unique or new to me. You've all experienced this, but... I was having conversations with people who are part of the same family. One person very concerned that they might lose their job because they're not convinced that they should get vaccinated. In the same, within the same hour, another person very concerned because people that they love and that they do life with aren't willing to get vaccinated. Right? And Paul defines what it means for us to love one another. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. There's a reasonable way to disagree and an unreasonable way to disagree. And love is, is finding a reasonable way to disagree. It's not insisting on our own way. It is not irritable, irritable or resentful. Verse 6, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three but the greatest of these is love. If you're wondering how to love, what's the definition of love, just read verses 4 through 7 again and again and again. When you start to feel that thing rise up in you, that you're, you're like, I'm not sure if I love Christians anymore. I'm not sure if I love these type of Christians. I'm not sure if I, we can get along. I'm not sure if we can be in the same church, in the same small group, in the same family. I'm not sure that I want to reach out to them anymore. I'm not sure. Read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 to see what it looks like for you to love a brother or sister in Christ. And then if that's not enough, read some of these passages from John. Flip over to John with me. 1 John chapter 3. It's on page 1022, 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 through 18. John, the apostle of love, who we're going to talk more about next week. 
walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, heard from Jesus, and now years later picks up this teaching and informs the church. 1 John chapter 3 Verse 11, he says, For this is the message that, you have heard from the, that we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Evidence that you're a follower of Jesus. Do you love your brothers and sisters? Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Remember Jesus' teaching? Not just if you actually commit the physical act of murder, but if you have hatred in your heart, if you have disdain in your heart, if you have settled opposition in your heart towards a brother or sister in the faith. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that that murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So actually, if you have hatred, if you have disdain, if you have settled opposition in your heart towards a brother and sister in the faith, it might be better to point the finger back inside and say, am I a brother and sister in the faith? Maybe they're holding to the true faith and maybe I've wavered. Because of the definition of loving brother and sister, if I can't find that in me, there's not evidence actually that I'm walking with Jesus any longer. If I claim to be a disciple of Jesus, a Christian, one who walks with Jesus, his very teaching was that I would love the other people who are walking with him. Pick it up in verse 16. By this we know love. Here's again, more definition. That he, being Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love not in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Put love into action. The definition of love is action. It's the action that we saw in, verse, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. It's the action of laying down your life, laying down your preferences, laying down your perspectives, your opinions for the good of others. Look at John chapter 4, verse 7, just on the next page. Beloved. Look at, look at how this pastor addresses the church. Beloved. Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not Love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. God is love. Disciples walk with Jesus by loving one another, loving their brothers and sisters, willing to lay down their very lives for their brothers and sisters. And you're not going to be able to do this unless you understand that God loves you even with your inconsistencies, even with your failures, even with your continuing like knee-jerk reaction to judge others surrender that to God and say, God, I know that I'm loved by you even in spite of all my 
fleshly reactions and desires. And so if I'm loved by you, could you empower me and help me to love my brothers and sisters in Christ? Lastly, as we close out this morning, look at John 15 to see Jesus' example, Jesus's example of love. John 15, verse 12 through 17. It's on page 902 in the Pew Bible. Jesus instructing his followers, his apprentices, his disciples. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one, has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father, in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. So Jesus shows us what true love is, true brotherly and sisterly love is. Love for one another. Church family, this is where it starts. It starts at home. If, if we can't learn to love one another, there's no chance that the world who is so desperate for hope will look to the church or look to Christians for answers. Jesus has said, this is how you love one another. You lay down your lives for one another. And he has called you, brother, sister, he has called you a friend. I'm going to pray. The worship team is going to come back up and we're just going to, we're going to take communion there's communion packets in the pew in front of you. And if you're striving to walk with Jesus, this is here for you as a reminder that Jesus loved perfectly. That, that as it says here in John chapter 15, that true love has none other than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. This is here to remind us that Jesus laid down his life for us, his friends. So as we strive to walk with him, increasingly, day by day, we need to come back to this truth. That Jesus lived the life that we're incapable of living, died the death that we deserve, and he overcame sin and death in the grave because of love. Love sent him to the cross, love raised him from the dead, and now he's empowered you and I to love one another with a supernatural, not a superficial love, a supernatural love empowered by him and him alone. And so take communion, spend some time reflecting, do a little self-inventory and assessment. How am I loving one another? Where, where am I insisting on my own way? Where, where am I being irritable and rude and self-seeking? And, and just surrender that to God. Say, Jesus, thank you for, for being patient, for being kind, for not insisting on your own way, for not being irritable or for not being rude, for being all the things that my flesh tends to be. And that's why I take your flesh. I eat this this bread this morning as a reminder that my flesh is incapable of doing what I'm called to do, but in your flesh you did it perfectly. Now you have given me your life as my righteousness, and, and my blood is stained, but your blood was shed that I might receive new life. Let me pray, and we'll take communion and sing the gospel together. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. Thank you that when our flesh fails, 
your flesh overcomes. That when our blood is stained and guilty, your blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sin. We love you, Jesus. Help us to receive your love, to know that we are loved by you, that we are called friends by you. Then help us to love one another, not out of obligation or guilt, but out of a supernatural gift. Lord, supernaturally empower us to love one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ. May our love start at home for your glory, for our good, and the advancement of your gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.